As we begin our time of studying God's Word this morning, I want to read to you from the book of Acts, the 14th chapter. I'm going to read uh, Acts 14, verses 1 to 28, the entire chapter. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. I want to make a comment about this. When the Bible talks to us in the book of Acts about the Jews, it's talking about what today we would say uh, the Christians, um, the church people. In other words, the Jews is a religious group, and they were the people of God. They were not a pagan people. You know, They had not been sacrificing uh, roosters or hens but they had been sacrificing to the true God. They didn't have voodoo dolls. They were worshiping the true God. So these are the true people of God, the Jews. So when it says Jews, we should think today Christians, people who worship the real God, the true God. I'm going to start over. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of the people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks, but the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe in the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand up right on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from those vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness. In that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things, with difficulty they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. 
The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Let me make some, uh, point some things out in this text. So they come to Iconium, and what do they do? They go to the church. So they came to Church of the Good Shepherd, right? And they came in the church, and they announced to the Jews that Jesus Christ had been sacrificed for their sins, that he was the Lamb of God that all their Old Testament ritual had been pointing to. And what it says is that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. So a large number of people uh, who were of the true religion believed, and a large number of Greeks believed. Um, it's hard to put this in a context today. If you could go back maybe to the late 1800s in the South, a large number of the whites and a large number of the blacks. In other words, Greeks were despised by the Jews at the time. Completely despised. They were dirty. They were going, all right? And yet a large number of both Jews and Greeks were united in believing in Jesus Christ. All right? And then it says that the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Now what is today? Today is Reformation Sunday. So today is the day that we celebrate 492 years ago, Martin Luther pinning up on the wall of the Wittenberg Church, the 95 Theses that started the Reformation. Now, when Luther said the radical things he said, and what did Luther say anyhow? All this history, and, and, and we never read it. Well, first, where was Luther? Luther was in Wittenberg, and he was an instructor there, a schoolman, and um, the particular church he was at, the man that he was under, Frederick III of Saxony, was a man that was very pious, and at that time, relics were at the center of Christian piety. And you know what relics are? Relics are, are pieces of things and people that if you venerate them, it'll bring God's blessing on you. Relics then were kind of like going to conferences, Christian conferences today. You know, where you go and there are people that are things that are helpful, holy, pious, good, and if you get up close to them, they might help. So that's what relics are. And so Frederick III, in 1509, had over 5,000 relics. 5,000 relics. What were these things? Well, they, they included vials of the milk of the Virgin Mary. Straw from the manger of Jesus. 
and the body of one of the innocents massacred by King Herod. 5,000 of them. Now, at this time, there was a fundraising campaign. Any of you ever been a part of a capital campaign in a church? Okay, yeah, I have been. Was it painful for any of you? Yeah. I, it's painful for me. Um, there was a fundraising campaign for St. Peter's. Any of you been to St. Peter's? So, David, what's St. Peter's like? Just tell us. I mean, is it a place that you could be happy? It's, it's gorgeous. Uh-oh, am I going to get in trouble? So tell us what St. Peter's is like. It's a little uh, more dignified than the building we're worshiping in here. <laughs> is, that, is that all you have to say? Of any importance. All right. So in other words, it's a place that you could feel like you had been well-bred. Right? Right? Good art? Good music? Good architecture? Okay. Well, they were paying for this at the time. And here's what happened, because they were paying for this. As part of the fundraising campaign commissioned by Pope Leo X to finance the renovation of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, Johann Tetzel, a Dominican priest, began the selling of indulgences in the German lands. Albert of Mainz, the Archbishop of Mainz in Germany, had borrowed heavily to pay for his high church rank and was deeply in debt. He agreed to allow the sale of the indulgences in his territory in exchange for a cut of the proceeds. So what is this? Do you know what indulgences were? Indulgences were things dispensed from the treasury of merit of the church that would save you or your loved ones. That's what indulgences were. Uh, that God would overlook your sin, the sin of your loved one, and allow you into heaven quicker. That's what indulgences were. So because they built the fancy church, they had to pay for it. They had to pay for its renovation. And so they were selling salvation. All right. In Germany, being done by a pastor in the name of the true church. Even though Luther's prince, Frederick III, and the prince of the neighboring territory, George, Duke of Saxony, forbade the sale in their lands, Luther's parishioners traveled to purchase them. And when these people came to confession, in other words, when they came back to the priests at the Wittenberg Church, right? When they came back, they presented their plenary indulgences. You know what plenary means? A plenary session? Everybody's there, right? So a plenary indulgence means all y'all in free. All right? Everything's paid for. All your sins, everything. It's all copacetic. Everything's okay. All right? So when they came back, they presented their plenary indulgences, which they had paid good silver money for claiming that they no longer had to repent of their sins since the document promised to forgive all their sins. Okay? This is the church at the time of the Reformation. All right, now, what were the... Uh, what are the theses? So, Luther looks at this. Luther has people come into the church and say to the priest, I don't need to confess my sins because I have this 
this indulgence, this document that says that all my sins are forgiven, I paid good money for it, why should I have to humble myself? Why should I have to hear about my sin? Why should I have to confess my sin? Why should I have to talk about my abortion? Why should I ever have to confess that I have been petting with my boyfriend? You know, why should I talk about bloodlust? Why, why should I hear the preacher talking about sin? I have a plenary indulgence. I'm done with that. I don't have to have a broken heart anymore. You don't have to look to Jesus. I look to Rome. And I look to the plenary indulgence, and I'm all all in free. Luther looks at this, and he is horror-stricken. And so he writes 95 statements. 95. 492 years ago. October 31st. 95 of them. And here's the first one, and this will give you a clue where you're headed. The first one is, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. <laughs> well, you know, that doesn't go well with religion, does it? I mean, the pastor's the one that you pay to tell you that all you are in free. Certainly, you don't want the pastor to tell you that when our Lord said you must repent, he was teaching you that your entire life as a Christian is to be one of repentance. Where's the grace? Now, mind you, Luther's the Apostle of Grace. And yet, that's the first of his 95 theses that started the Reformation. He's teaching us that our life as Christians is to be one of repentance. Now, is your life a life of repentance? Is it? You realize I'm asking whether you're a Protestant. Right? Because if your life isn't a life of repentance, you're not a Christian and you're not a Protestant. You can be a Catholic and not have repentance. Because you get a plenary indulgence. You know they're still doing it. It's not as nasty and, 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 and um, mercantile <laughs> as it used to be, although it's pretty close. It's just a little bit more sophisticated. A little more tactful. A little, as the academics would say, a little more nuanced. But if you're a Protestant and if you're a Christian, your life is a life of repentance. If you read any of the Gospels, you read through the Gospel and see what Jesus said, Jesus again and again and again left us naked, exposed, and pleading for mercy. That's what Jesus' ministry was. It was a ministry of exposing us to ourselves as we really are. You've heard it said to you that, you know, you should not murder, you should not kill. But I say to you, any man that calls his neighbor fool, raka, has already murdered in his heart. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. I tell you, any man that will sin a woman with lessons, this is hopeless. I'm going someplace else. I need a plenary indulgence. Is your life a life of repentance? Did you notice at the end of our text that it says that the Apostle Paul went in and that he told them all the good things that the Lord had been doing? Did you notice that? In the text? You didn't notice that. Let me read it to you. 
the text says this. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So apparently, when the people of God gathered at the time of the apostles, it was common for them to report the good that God had done. Now, if I were to tell you the good that Martin Luther did and its Reformation Sunday, that would sound excellent, wouldn't it? Think of all the good things that Martin Luther did by blowing to smithereens this system of trading money for the salvation of souls. It's disgusting, right? Here's, here's, here's what was actually going on at the time. Listen to this. A church leader at the time of the Reformation, a church leader who was known to have murdered a man, was punished by the church leaders by being imprisoned for a short time and kept on bread and water. Many churches had priests who didn't even know how to read and were unable to recite anything from memory except maybe the Lord's Prayer. And these were the ones leading them to heaven. They couldn't read and they had nothing in memory except the Lord's Prayer. A parish priest who had taken a vow of celibacy had a live-in girlfriend and the whole town knew it, but the church leaders would not discipline him. Another parish priest in the town, in the taverns, drunk, time after time after time. No discipline. Kept in his position, never disciplined. So think about this. You know, is that a church you can believe in? And then they're selling plenary indulgences. So, Luther comes along, and now you know why it's remembered the 95 Theses. That's the situation, right? And Luther comes along. You've heard his first of the 95 when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent. He called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. I'm going to read a few more. Number seven, God never remits guilt to anyone without at the same time making humbly submissive to the priest his representative. Numbers 27, there is no divine authority for preaching that the soul flies out of the purgatory immediately the money clinks in the bottom of the chest. That's what Tetzel's uh, motto was. The minute that the money clinks into the chest, the soul springs free. And he says there's no divine authority for preaching that the soul flies out of purgatory immediately the money clinks in the bottom of the chest. 28, it's certainly possible that when the money clinks in the bottom of the chest, avarice and greed increase... But when the church offers intercession, all depends on the will of God. Number 32. All those who believe themselves certain of their own salvation by means of letters of indulgence will be eternally damned together with their teachers. This is Martin Luther, guys. Everybody honors him, right? Okay, number 36. Any Christian whatsoever who's truly repentant enjoys plenary remission from penalty and guilt, and this is given to him without letters of indulgence. Number 37. Any true Christian whatsoever, living or dead, participates in all the benefits of Christ in the church, and this participation is granted to him by God without letters of indulgence. Now, 
you sh- when you hear that, you should think the entire economic political system of the time is obliterated by those statements. This is like a stick of dynamite at the center of, of the medieval ages, right? Because everything is set up on the basis of money going into the church and the church giving out her authority to forgive sins and to bless whoever's the civil authority. The interrelatedness of the civil authority and and the religious authority was like this in the Middle Ages, right? And he's saying, hey, it doesn't happen by you selling indulgences. Number 46, Christians should be taught that unless they have more than they need, they are bound to retain what is only necessary for the upkeep of their home and should in no way squander it on indulgences. Number 48, Christians should be taught that in granting indulgences, the Pope has more need and more desire for devout prayer on his own behalf than for ready money. Number 49, that's a financial counselor in our midst. Christians should be taught, he's also my (laughs) son-in-law. Okay, Christians should be taught that the Pope's indulgences are useful only if one does not rely on them, but most harmful if one loses the fear of God through them. I'll read that one again. Christians should be taught that the Pope's indulgences are useful only if one does not rely on them, but most harmful if one loses the fear of God through them. Number 50, Christians should be taught that if the Pope knew the exactions of the indulgence preachers, he would rather the Church of St. Peter reduce to ashes than be built with the skin, flesh, and bones of the sheep. Number 62, the true treasure of the Church is the holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Number 63, it is right to regard this treasure as most odious, for it makes the first to be the last. It's like a rashness in praise of folly. You know, everything's flipped on its head. So he's being tongue-in-cheek here. We should regard the treasure of the gospel as stinking, because the treasure of the gospel makes the first to be last. Right? Number sixty-six. The treasuries, the treasures of the indulgences, are the nets today, which they use to fish for men of wealth. Number 79, it's blasphemy to say that the insignia of the cross with the papal arms are of equal value to the cross on which Christ died. Number 80, the bishops, curates, and theologians who permit assertions of that kind to be made to the people without letter hindrance will have to answer for it. Number 86, again, since the Pope's income today is larger than that of the wealthiest of wealthy men, I'm going to read this one again. This one's pretty funny. Again, since the Pope's income today is larger than that of the wealthiest of wealthy men, more than Bill Gates, why doesn't he build this church of St. Peter with his own money? (laughs) Rather than with the money of indigent believers. And then I'm going to read the last four straight through. This is 92 through 95. Away then with those prophets who say to Christ's people, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Hail, hail to those prophets who say to Christ's people, the cross, the cross, where there is no cross. 
Christians should be exhorted to be zealous to follow Christ their head through penalties, deaths, and hells, and let them thus be more confident of entering heaven through many tribulations rather than through a false assurance of peace. Do you notice in our text what it said? Do you remember what it said about that? Verse 22, after they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So again, I ask you, is your life a life of repentance? And if you're tired of me asking you that, then my next question is, is your life a life of tribulations? I mean, is it? Is it a life of tribulation? Yeah, it is, actually, for you. You're too hard on yourself. That's often your problem. Remember how it said that they, had, they told the people the good things that God had been doing? In, prep, in preparing for the sermon, knowing that it's Reformation Sunday, but that it's also the Sunday of our annual meeting and that we're electing elders, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about the blessing of this church. Because the truth is, this is a church filled with people whose lives are lives of repentance. That's what we are. And I said to Joseph after the, my first sermon, my son, my oldest son, I should say, I said to him, well, what would you think? I never, ever asked Joseph this part. And he said, well, it was a good conference talk, but it wasn't a sermon. So I said, tell me how you really felt, Joseph. <laughs> and I said, well, what I really want to do is talk about the blessing of God on this church. Because every time I leave town, it just oozes out of me to come home. It really does. And to be a part of the worship. And it's primarily the first half of the service that's what I want. Um, but the only way to do that is to be self-serving because as a pastor, you can't separate your identity from your church. You understand? If a guy that's a shopkeeper tells you that his products are the best, you go, yikes. You know, and so a preacher talking about God's blessing on a church, I don't give a rip. I don't give a rip. The blessing of God on this church is so obvious that I am going to tell you what God has done in this church. And if you think I'm doing it so that you will offer sacrifices to me, you're an idiot. I don't want your sacrifices. You already pay me well, and I'm happy. And so it's not about you calling me Zeus or Dave Carell Maximilian <laughs> or Stephen Hermes. Actually, no, I guess I'd be Her Hermes and you'd be Zeus. <laughs> me, Hermeneutic. I wanted to read something else to you. Right before I got up here, I ran to my office to get this. Some of you have seen this before. Um, this is a book published in 17... 
70. And it's written by John Newton. Where is Jody? Is Jody in here? Tell him about John Newton. Oh, you can't? Stephen, tell him about John Newton. He wrote a hymn for every sermon. Okay. So that's John Newton. And this is a book titled A Review of Ecclesiastical History. Ecclesiastical means church. Ecclesia in Greek means church, or is, is the word church. So here he is writing church history. And here's how John Newton sums up church history. A review of ecclesiastical history so far as it concerns the progress, declensions, and revivals, declension, decline. In other words, the rot and decay and the growth and blessing. I'm going to give you the negatives and the positives of church history, of evangelical doctrine and practice with a brief account of the spirit and methods by which vital and experimental religion have been opposed in all ages of the church. John Newton says, in every age of the church, true religion, true gospel religion, has always been opposed. In all ages of the church, it's been opposed. Is it opposed in the book of Acts? You realize that chapter is an outline for Acts. Everywhere they go, they preach the gospel. Everywhere they preach the gospel, the religious people oppose them. And the thing I find so fascinating here is the... I'll please the English literature professor in our midst. The juxtaposition. My whole life has been leading up to using that word for Barbara. Okay. Even saying these things with difficulty, verse 18, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. So people have come to faith. They've healed the dude. The people are wanting to make sacrifices to them as gods. They tell them, we're not gods. Turn to Jesus Christ before you're judged, right? Even so, with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. <laughs> what juxtaposition! It's unbelievable! You know these guys are offering sacrifices to them, and the next verse says some of the religious people came in and stirred them up, Made, made a big stink, and so they stoned them, thinking that they killed them. How does that happen? How do you go from preaching the good news, people believing, you heal a man, they're sacrificing to you as God, you say, no, 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 we're just men like you, and then they stone you and leave you for dead. How does that happen? You know, what was Paul like as a man? It must have been something about him as a man. You know, maybe he wore bow ties. Maybe he was black and it was the South. Maybe he was dogmatic. Maybe he wasn't nuanced enough and, and wasn't tactful. Maybe he had bad breath. Maybe he was dressed 
in a, an embarrassing way, plaid shorts, Bermuda shorts, plaid. Maybe he smoked. Maybe he was dogmatic. Maybe he was exclusive. Maybe he was intolerant. Maybe he was dogmatic. Something about that man really set them off. Right? 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 Something about Paul really set them off. Right? There's nothing about Paul. Nothing about Paul. He was neither a god nor a demon. And evangelicals, everything's about numbers. How many people were listening? How many people do you have members? How many books did you sell? How many people at your conference? And I want you to see exactly what the numbers game is all about. The apostles have got the numbers. Right? They got them. They got the numbers. And those numbers within minutes are stoning them and leaving them for dead. That's the value of numbers. So what was it about Paul that caused that huge group to go from worshiping them to killing them? Well, you know the truth, right? Remember what Newton said? In all ages of the church, experimental, vital, true Christian faith has always been opposed. It had nothing to do with Paul. It had to do with the fact that he was speaking the word of God to them. And so they had to shut the word of God up. And so they stoned the word of God. They stoned Jesus Christ in Paul. Remember when Paul's going out to persecute before he becomes Christian? Remember what Jesus says? Jesus says, Paul, why do you persecute me? Not, why are you persecuting all these preachers that have bow ties and are dogmatic? No. Every preacher always through history has been defective in, 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 in a multitudinous ways. Lots of ways. <laughs> your preacher back home, your preacher here. Not just me, Stephen and David. Everybody who preaches. So it's not about the preachers. It's about the message. And here's the amazing thing. The amazing thing is that as Paul preaches and is stoned, preaches and is shipwrecked, preaches and has to escape over the wall of the city in a basket, preaches and is arrested and barely escapes with his life. This is the whole story of the book of Acts. As Paul does this, the church of Jesus Christ grows. And it grows not with people who think that if they put money into a box, the soul springs free. It grows with people whose hearts are tender. And when they hear the holiness of God the righteousness of Christ, and the free gift of grace to all those who believe in Jesus. Their hearts spring free from the free preaching of the Word of God. And that's what this church is. I, have, I, I remember when this church started. Some of you were there at the beginning. It don't matter. Those of you who this is your first day have just as much importance you belong just as much as anybody here at the beginning. I hate that charter member thing. This is disgusting. 
When this church started, though, I want to tell you the story. So, like, the elders are getting together and deciding what kind of church it is. And I can't be the pastor for a while. I have to sit at home and do nothing for a while. And so while I'm doing nothing, they talk to me. And they want to know, you know, what kind of church it needs to be. And I say, look, I only have one request. And my request is, I want a church where the preachers can get up and preach in conformity with the historic Protestant faith. And you will not punish them for it. Now, what did I mean when I said the historic Protestant faith? I, what I was saying was according to Scripture. What I'm saying is not the Roman Catholic Church, because the Roman Catholic Church has denied the faith. You go, oh, how could you say such a thing? And I say, well, it's a Protestant church. What do you expect me to do? <laughs> you know, I'm a Protestant pastor. I don't believe Roman Catholic doctrine is biblical. I think it's heretical. And some of my best friends are Roman Catholics. I was talking to one of them as a national television show on EWTN, right? I, some of you from the Roman Catholic Church, you know the name Scott Hahn, right? Okay. Scott Hahn was my friend in seminary. He was Presbyterian. I was Presbyterian. He's not Roman Catholic. He's a heretic. His wife, Kimberly, and I were friends in theology class together, arguing with our theology professor against women's ordination. Kimberly and I were like, like that. She's an excellent woman. She's a heretic. Because she denies the teaching of Scripture. And I was talking to this guy that has this television show, and we were bemoaning the Evangelicals and Catholics Together movement, which is a rapprochement between Protestants and Catholics. And we both agreed that what we ought to do is go on television together and call each other heretics and show respect for each other by calling each other heretics. You realize, women, that the most respect a man can give another man is to fight him? You realize that? And some of you men know that your best friends are the guys that punched you hardest the first time you met them. <laughs> and so you punch each other. He says, I'm a heretic. I know he does. I say he's a heretic. And, and we will soon find out. And so, I said, a historic, orthodox, Protestant church that's faithful to what the Protestants have taught across the centuries. And what I mean by that is, that is faithful to what we read in the Word of God. And that's what this church is. I keep trying to explain to people, we get called a cult all the time, typically by parents of college students, who thought that they had seduced their child to religion, and then their child came to Bloomington and discovered Jesus Christ. And immediately, the conflict comes, and they want to stone us, because their child was going safely down the path of religion, and then their child discovered Jesus Christ, and then their child's life became subordinate to the demands of Scripture. And boy, that causes problems in homes just as much today as it has all through history. Okay? And so they call us a cult. They tell their parents, the parents tell the kids, we don't want you to go to the church because it's a cult. Or they may not use the word. And here's what I say. This church, in every single particular except the bow tie, 
in every single particular, this church is boringly normal all through Protestant church history. There's not one doctrine, not one thing I say, nothing, nothing I write, nothing that would not put people to sleep. In other words, it's not so terrific across church history. Do you realize that? This is a Protestant church. It's just normal. And the reason you don't believe me, the reason there's this little brain, this little voice in your brain going, oh, it can't be, can't be, is because you have never been in a Protestant church before. And you go, oh, no, I'm PCA. I see, like I said, you've never been in a Protestant church before. <laughs> Why? Because Protestant churches start by saying, is your life a life of repentance? I just read the first of the 95 Theses. Has any church ever said to you before, is your life a life of repentance? Has any church ever said that to you before? Now, some of you will say yes, and I say, God bless you, but most of you, you're going to have to be honest and say no. And I tell you, if whatever religion you've been fed has called, has called you to reject repentance, because after all, you're supposed to be graceful, it's not a Protestant church. If any religion you've ever had has not caused you to fear God, in fact, has told you you must not fear God, it isn't a Protestant church. And when I say Protestant, I mean it isn't a biblical church. And this church will not punish me for saying these things. And I'm not saying that because I can overwhelm the elders. Which is, of course, what everybody wants to think. I'm saying this because the elders won't tolerate me if I don't preach repentance and grace together. And so, I'm thankful for the work of God in this church and through this church. Every single time I get up to preach in this church, I am strengthened by the women of this church. The women. Who's strengthening me this morning? I know all your stories. I know you. And as I'm preaching, I remember the acts of faith of this woman sitting right here. And she's just one. Just one. It's obvious I'm thinking of Barbara Lear, because I talked about her a little while ago, the English professor. That's Barbara Lear. I'm strengthened by her. I'm strengthened by Brandon's wife, who's put up with Brandon. Right, Brandon? Right on. A few years ago, Linda's father had to be disciplined in this church. In his old age. And he was the sweetest man you've ever met. We had to discipline him publicly. And Linda, steady as she goes, dudes. 
faith, truth, and grief. And she never left. And she's just one. So, this church is a church where men and women together make no distinction between each other. We're all in Christ, male and female. But, guess what? The women submit to their husbands. Sorry about that. I'm just Protestant, which is to say biblical, which is to say boring. Okay? This is a church where... We actually believe in repentance. This is a church where if the pastors don't preach both repentance and faith, they'll be fired. Do you realize this? This is a church where women have babies. Radical. I mean, think about this. It's insane, this world we live in. You know, one of the chief curiosities about Church of the Good Shepherd is that they have babies. This is a church where sometimes women in graduate programs give them up to get married. Really? Imagine that. This is weird. This is a church where the head of the teachers' union in Nashville, Linda, all right, sits right next to the advocate of homeschooling. I know you're not. But I had to come up with, I don't know where. Where's Tim? There's Tim. And, and are you okay with Linda? Are you okay with Tim? Isn't that amazing? They're the teachers' union. We don't have any problems. Why? Because what's important to us is the Word of God. This is a church of many tribulations. Bob, a lot of people have been through that tribulation, caring for Bob. But you know, all the men that have cared for Bob, raise your hand. The real tribulation has been Bob allowing you to care for him. And Bob's a Jew. See, we have Jews too. <laughs> a gold Jew. Just look at that mouth. <laughs> so, people, listen. Um, this is Reformation Sunday. All through church history, vital experimental evangelical faith has been opposed in, in the church, always. There are churches that will not give in. There are churches that that call pastors and tell them they better not start scratching their ears. Churches where the women are strong and... All the children are above average, except Taylor. But he's good at soccer. And all the men are good-looking. Churches where we have children, babies, babies. If he says that one more time, I'm going to split his head open. Babies. We found out how many more this week was? One or two? Well, kind of three. 
because Nick and Rebecca are kind of still a part of us. Nugent. And then there's, well, I don't know if I'm allowed to tell, so I'll have to have you guys ask afterwards. So um, as we go into our congregational meeting, this is Reformation Sunday. The first of the 95 theses is when our Lord Jesus said, you must repent. He was teaching us that the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. That's Protestantism. Where Martin Luther says that if all the religion you do ends up teaching you not to fear God, it's wrong. We teach grace here. But to people who fear God and who are coming to him through repentance.